Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. Episode 30, Inferno, Canto Terentesimo, the second day, afternoon. I can't believe I'm only four canti away from the end of the first cantica. Where did time fly? In this canto we will find three more categories of forgers. Impersonators, forgers of money and forgers of words. The canto started in a high register with the usual everyday reference and then moved to a lower register, about 30 verses in when we see Capocchio again and then came back to a high register towards the end. The long classical preamble is there to give us a frame of reference for just how mad the damned in that bulge are. I'm somewhat surprised he went for those two examples of folly and instead of the packet, which to me seems more appropriate. And yes, the irony is not lost on me that I am doing exactly what I complained that Dante always does. The man who attacked Capocchio in such a way was, we're told by Griffolino, a uh, Gianni Schicchi. Nothing is said of him, but there is a opera by Puccini about him, so there has to either be something known of him, or he just invented the whole thing. Of course, the way Dante is satisfied with just being told the name is a good indication that he's a historical figure from Florence. And indeed, he is. Gianni Schicchi de Cavalcanti was a 13th century Italian knight who was condemned to hell for impersonating Buoso Donati and making his will highly favourable to Schicchi himself. This detail came to Puccini from an 1866 edition of the Divine Comedy by a philologist named Pietro Fanfani, which contained an appendix with commentary attributed to an anonymous Florentine source of the 14th 14th century. You are probably familiar with the opera because of its famous aria O mio babbino caro, but I'm fascinated by the fact it's an opera in one act and a comedy while at that. It's the only opera of a comedic nature that Puccini wrote, but I've never seen it performed so I can't tell if it's because he realised he isn't good at comedy or he had bills to pay and people weren't commissioning funny things. But his most famous operas are already hugely sad, and I love them, but it's nice to see a tradition of comedy on stage being carried on every now and again. Anyway, this isn't the time for me to just babble on about Puccini. I'll probably just crash my husband's podcast again sometimes. If you're interested in a relaxed podcast about classical music for everyone, and not just high culture snobs like yours truly and the late Roger Scruton, it's called Bach to reality with a number two or one word back as Sebastian Bach and it's on all uh, podcasting platforms although if you're listening to this you don't really hate high culture so I probably didn't even need to say that but anyway the reason for this digression is that I have a cool fact for any of you who will be visiting Florence in the future or maybe if some of you live in Florence and did not know that for some reason the house of Bozo Donati, which was at the centre of this whole debacle, is real, and you can still see a part of it according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, 
as a crumbling tower on the Via del Corso, very near to the house where Dante was born in 1265. Dante's house was reconstructed in the early 20th century and is now a museum, so it should be easy to find. I don't remember if I mentioned it in episode 1, but Dante married Gemma Donati, who was the daughter of Sermanetto Donati with some degree of relation to Bozo, whom we have seen in her a few days back. Anyway, Skiki's classical counterpart was Mira, also known as Mirna, who was the mother of Adonis. She pretended to be a different woman in order to seduce her father, whom she was in love with, against every moral law. There is no interaction with either of them. Griffolino explains the reason why they are in hell, and then their attention moves towards a man whose description is something I don't know how to summarise doing it justice, so I won't even try. This man was named Mastrodamo, and it tells us that he used to be affluent, but now he was begging in vain for something to relieve his thirst. Despite the richness of the portrayal that Dante writes in this canto, we know very little of the man, except that he was a forger of money and died at the stake for this crime in 1281. He became implicated in this crime thanks to the Guidi family, or so he says, and is therefore on the lookout for three of them. You might remember that I mentioned them too before. The world in which Dante moved was really tiny. Something fascinating about this passage is the precision of the numbers mentioned for the size of the Bolgia. Someone called Manfredi Perena did the math and calculated that at the speed of one inch every hundred years, it would take him 700,000 years to find Guido, the only one of them that he was told was already there. Commentator Victoria Kirkham, the author of Eleven is for Evil, Measured Trespass in Dante's Commedia, claimed that, you can guess, that the title, uh, the 11 miles circumference here is the number of transgression. On the other hand, the always level-headed Olanda points out 11 may merely be half of the 22 that were mentioned by Dante in the previous Bolger. Um, next to Adamo, there were two people suffering from a high fever, and they were Potiphar's wife from Genesis 39, verses 6 to 20, who made a false accusation against Joseph when she failed to seduce him, and the other was Sinon. He appeared in two different epic cycles about the Trojan War, and one of them was Dianade. It's a scene that did not appear in either of Homer's writing on that war, but basically he lied about having deserted the Greeks and, while in captivity, convinced the Trojan to get the horse inside the city against the prophecy of Cassandra who told them not to do it or they'd bring destruction to the city. And so that happened. Simon takes offence to being talked about, or at least that's the most reasonable explanation of the fact that he starts a fight with Adamo. The whole thing looks like a sketch out of the Commedia dell'arte, except that it predates it. According to commentator Kevin Brownlee, the reference to Narcissus in the final Jai begins a series of references to the myth in all of the three Canto the Thirtieth, a thing that he called the Narcissus program. It's something I picked up in the usual Hollander commentary, but it doesn't say anything about the meaning of it, so I looked it up, and a William Frankie referenced it too in his book, 
Dante and the Sense of Transgression, The Trespass of the Sign, which sounds like something I would definitely read. According to him, the theme of self-reflection goes beyond these three references into being a constant of the whole poem. Every word in the poem is, as he calls it, a miniature engine of self-reflection. They are also references to the transcendent, uh, to God who is the very act of being itself. He goes on to say that unlike the rest of the medieval tradition, which frowns upon self-referentiality, for Dante it was a revelation of the sacred nature of the Trinitarian God, with each person reflecting into the others. Funnily, the myth of Narcissus was one of a couple of things I wrote in school as part of an exercise in retelling stories that ended up sent around by my teacher in one of two circumstances that convinced everyone I should be a professional writer. And that's something I have resisted doing for about 10 years before I realised London is offensive and I couldn't be so petty about using the only skill I have just because others told me so. It turns out I'm also good at cooking, so I have two skills now, but writing has been the easiest to leverage. Anyway, connected to the self-reflection, I think, is the idea of dreaming the one is dreaming, which the Columbia Project defines as dreaming the truth. It is in a conclusion of the meditation on the meaning of the Commedia that began with the meeting with Garion, and it's also connected to the role of the narrator's voice as exemplified by the final verses here. The whole poem lives in the tension between what we get to see and don't get to see based on both what Dante pays attention to in his journey and what he, as the narrator, decides to recollect in his storytelling. One such thing is that Dante watches the fight and for that Virgil tells him off, saying he's close to picking up a fight with him. Something else to fight under, I don't get Virgil. Anyway, Dante is mortified and Virgil tells him that even less shame than his feeling would wash away bigger sins. So just stop being sad. And then we end the canto with Virgil telling Dante to stick by his side in case of another similar situation, because the desire to listen in on an argument is a vile desire. He'd definitely not be a fan of 90% of modern television. And on this sobering thought, I wish you a good rest of the day and be back here tomorrow. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is fun for 10 or adds if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Sheik or on my blog www.sheikandcatholic.com.